This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. I am uh, I'm, uh, I'm definitely out of the transmission stage, but I'm getting over COVID, so I have a little bit of a COVID mind tonight, which is a great uh, excuse uh, to not answer questions about the book of Revelation that I've chosen uh, to lecture on tonight. Um, but I'm going to just jump, I'm just going to jump in, and I want to um, present some on the book of Revelation as a, as a underutilized, confusing, strange book, but a, but a source uh, a resource to enliven our imaginations about what it means uh, to live lives of hope, especially in in crazy times. And it's it's a book that, throughout its history, has been interpreted in various ways. But it's been cherished by artists, artists, musicians. There's tons of worship that happens in the Book of Revelation, and a lot of our worship music, whether or not we're aware of it, um, is working with imagery and language from Revelation. But artists have also found it fascinating. So I'm going to have one artist in particular accompany us sort of tonight. He's a contemporary artist. Uh, his name is Jake, or sorry, James Janiget. I think I pronounced that right. He, uh, if you Google BC Art Farm, he's a Catholic artist uh, who currently lives outside of Austin, Texas. I'm just going to show you a couple of his images. He's he has a very uh, very unique style. It's very colorful. It's almost comical at times. And one of the things he likes to do in the last 20 years of his work or so is to take uh, biblical stories or biblical imagery and sort of paint them, but in modern day Texas. Uh, that's sort of his style. And so he's sort of funny. This is one, if you can kind of see this here, this is, you can see how colorful it is. This one's called Joyful Mystery, the Annunciation. It's from 2007. Um, just to give you an idea of what he's doing. And this is uh, Mary, and it says, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with you. She's now hearing that she's going to be with child, see the Holy Spirit. Uh, so he's working with a lot of imagery. He also has a lot of fun borders. Uh, so if you're a fan of borders, any border fans? No? Okay. Uh, <laughs> This is another one of his that doesn't have as much of a border, but this is from 2006, <laughs> Good Shepherd. So he's, he does interesting stuff that I, for, I actually saw this painting in person. He works a lot with Christian in the visual, Christians in the Visual Arts, SIVA, an organization. And I saw this in a gallery and was so struck by it. And at first I just thought it was silly because um, there's something disarming about the color and the disproportionate bodies and faces. And then... The more you look at it, they're, they're quite um, quite intriguing, quite thought-provoking, quite rich, and he's, he's playing with a lot of traditional images throughout the history of Western art and sort of putting them in a very distinct way. So he's going to be sort of our accompaniment tonight. And so this is one of... this is He's done a lot based on the book of Revelation. So even if you don't like anything that I say, hopefully you'll enjoy Jim's art. 
Uh, this is his 2014 piece called Revelation. Um, so that's a little bit about him. We'll see a few more of his images throughout the evening. But yeah, Revelation is one of those books in the Bible that gets pretty strong reactions. Either, uh, Understandably, either you want kind of nothing to do with it, you don't understand it, uh, or there's some folks that obsess about it, and they tend to read it as like an end times puzzle, has a crystal ball effect, uh, and it, it it is a book that people love to sort of decode. Uh, and it's just... It's worth saying up front, it's a strange book in a lot of ways, so maybe this is a foolish endeavor on my part, uh, and partly why I'm at least exposing you to Jim's artwork, because I think it's, <laughs> at least you can get that out of the evening. And better minds than my own, and actually all of ours collectively, have been befuddled and bewildered by this book. So I'm going to give a few quotes. Um, uh, by people that have spent time with this book. So here's one. Neither apostolic nor prophetic, I can in no way detect that the Holy Spirit produced it. Again, they are supposed to be blessed who keep what is written in this book, and yet no one knows what that is, to say nothing of keeping it. Christ is neither taught nor known in it. That's Martin Luther, uh, the Protestant reformer. He said that in 1522, and admittedly, eight years later, so if Revelation makes no sense to you, maybe sit with it for eight years. But eight years later, um, in, uh, he, he did a second edition, a second translation of it, and that he said, through and beyond all plagues, beasts, and evil angels, Christ is nonetheless with his saints and wins the final victory. So he, Luther eventually warmed up to Revelation. Here's another one. Revelation is the curious record of the visions of a drug addict. That's from playwright George Bernard Shaw. Uh, and here's a great line from G.K. Chesterton, uh, who said, Though St. John the Evangelist saw many strange monsters in his visions, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. Um, and a guy who taught um, New Testament for years at Harvard down the road, Named Christer, Christer Stendhal, he actually said Revelation is a script for a horror movie. Um, so yeah, so there's a lot of people who have spent a lot of time looking at it and have been like, "What on earth is going on?" Uh, so why why look at it? Why should we look at it? Why not look somewhere else in Scripture that's less puzzling, less potentially horrific, maybe that um, makes more sense to us? And so I'm going to put for two answers. Uh, are two possible reasons why. And we'll move to another piece of art. This is uh, a 2006 painting of... Jan- uh, I never pronounce his name right. Janigat, I think. Uh, this is called St. John Evangelist. And uh, the, the tradition has said that John, who wrote the book of Revelation, is the same John who wrote the letters of John in the New Testament and the Gospel of John. Some people disagree on that one way or the other. But this is John writing the Gospel, and so I thought it kind of... It kind of worked. I like that. Um, I like his shirt actually quite a bit, especially because John, who wrote Revelation, is supposed to be exiled on Patmos. He's in prison, and there's something that's kind of barzy about prison barzy about that shirt. But that's his his work on John. But it's it's worth. So the first reason why I think we can look to Revelation um, is because it's a letter from a pastor. It's a letter from a pastor to a socially marginal and persecuted group of Christians. So unlike Paul, who introduces so many of his letters by saying, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I think except Philippians, he calls himself a servant. 
Uh, John introduces himself with the following. I, John, this is in chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So if you're struggling, if you're suffering, if you're confused and disoriented, if you're in doubt, pain, and confusion, John is writing to someone who is in a similar place to you. That's part of his intention in writing this admittedly strange book. Uh, And a little bit later, I've given out a handout to some, I think... There's a few more to the people that came late. Does anyone want to hear? Uh, if you want to just pass those. Um, yeah, we'll look and see that each of the recipients of the letter, or the majority of the recipients of this, this strange document themselves were under real duress and persecution. And they were people who had limited social capital and were really just trying to get by, struggling to remain faithful to Jesus in a culture that was antagonistic, that was hostile, and that was violent towards them. And so there's a great little book on Revelation by Eugene Peterson that I thought I had a copy of, but I can't find it anywhere for the life of me, called Reverse Thunder, the Revelation of John and the Praying Imagination. And in it, Peterson says this, what is frequently missed is that all the eschatology, and eschatology is sort of the big $5 theology word, $15 even theology word, for end times and sort of things happening at the end. Uh, He said, what is frequently missed is that all the eschatology is put to immediate pastoral use. He says, eschatology is the most pastoral of all the theological perspectives, showing how the ending impinges on the present. So whatever we say about this book, whatever fantastical and speculative interpretation we offer, it has to be acknowledged that it's written from someone who was in a hard spot, because of their faith, to other people that were also in a hard spot because of their faith. They were in difficult times. And I think uh, there's something that makes it a little bit more relatable. We'll move back to uh, Jekinet's uh, piece here, the Revelation. And so the second reason I think considering uh, this book, or worth looking at this book, uh, we can see in the two most common commands, actually, throughout the book of Revelation. As you read the book of Revelation, you see the two most, the first, the first, or the most often used command in the book is to look, to see. John is always told, look, see. And the second thing John is told is to not be afraid. The second most common command. And there's some connection. Revelation, with its unsettling visions, gives us a way to live the second, to not be afraid, by obeying and following the first, by looking at things uh, that John is looking at and wants us to see as well. The visions of the book of Revelation serve a pastoral end. They're very symbolic and strange and poetic, but they they were meant to remind these early beleaguered communities of faith But there's often more to reality than what we just see with our own eyes. There's more going on. When they looked out into their world, they could see signs everywhere of Rome's power, from the military to the imprints on the coins to the architecture in the city center. Rome was in charge, and Rome set the agenda for the world. And for us, we can look out into our own lives or into our own world, and maybe we don't see Rome, but there is a sense of there's someone else is running the show, someone else is in charge, or it's total chaos. 
No one's running the show. Nothing is going on. We look out and we see war. We see petty dictators and tyrants. We see school shootings. We see sex trafficking. We see broken marriages. There's so much chaos. And these are all things we see in our world, and they shape our imagination. And as strange uh, as Revelation is, and I, I, I don't believe you have to have every sort of part nailed down or understood perfectly to get the gist of the book. And I think this has often been true in communities that, like the recipients of this letter, resided on the margins of society that had less power, less influence, uh, and were living through moments of real crisis. So I think it's worth considering sort of the two most common, or maybe at least in my mind when I think of ways the book of Revelation has been read in North America. There's a, there's one that's very popular that was popularized by the Left Behind books. It's a, a wildly series, a wildly popular series of poorly written books. Uh, I think there's 14 total. There are, I, I say this generously. It's a waste of time, and it's, it's actually very destructive theology, I think, that's behind these books. Uh, and they turned into video games and movies. Uh, first movies had Kirk Cameron, and then they made more movies that had Nicolas Cage. Um, uh, but the gist of, uh, of the reading is Revelation gives us a puzzle that will help us escape from trouble. And that we won't have to deal with trouble, we'll ultimately have to escape, and those who are left behind will have to deal with the trouble. Another way that Revelation has been read in the American imagination is the U.S. Civil Rights Movement. There's an interesting book by a New Testament scholar named Brian, uh, Brian Blount. Um, uh, and I forget what it's called. It, um, and I also couldn't find it, just like the Eugene Peterson one. But um, it's a book on basically reading Revelation with the Civil Rights Movement. It's a really interesting book. But it's a group which uh, resisted and ultimately fought to change an evil status quo in our on our culture. And they were in part shaped by John's vision. They sang a simple anthem, we shall overcome. And this word overcome comes from the King James Version. And it's the rendering of a Greek word called Nikon. Or Nikon is the Greek word. And it's used all over the book of Revelation. It's not really used in the rest of the New Testament. But it's used in the book of Revelation. It's part of John's unique contribution uh, sort of to biblical vernacular. And the word is used in the refrain um, that concludes the promises to each of the seven letters. So if you look at that little chart that has the seven letters, they're always told that they can overcome. Uh, and so New Testament scholar Richard Hayes comments that as freedom marchers from black churches join hands in saying, we shall overcome someday, they were expressing their faith that despite their lack of conventional political power, their witness to truth would prevail over violence and oppression. They had hope that they received in part from this strange book of Revelation, a book that shaped their imagination about what was possible in this world. Uh, and of course, it's a, it's a demanding book. But there's another little, it's a really excellent little book. Um, this one I did find on my bookshelf. Someone's bookshelf isn't just eating all my books. Um, uh, a, a little book called The Theology of the Book of Revelation by New Testament scholar Richard Balcom, who was at St. Andrews. I don't know where he teaches now. Um, <clears throat> but he says, 
part of what this, these images, these strange things do is this. I love his language here. He says the point that John, what John is after here is to purge and refurbish the Christian imagination about what is possible. To purge and refurbish the Christian imagination. And Peterson, in his little book, Reverse Thunder, kind of works with the same idea, but he uses the image of a groggy walk through the woods. He's sort of slowly waking up, and as he's walking through the woods, he starts hearing birds. Then he starts seeing the birds, and then he notices new plants that are growing. His imagination, his, his mind, is awakened to what's around him. Uh, and by imagination, just a quick little thing. I don't mean imagination is like uh, the thing we tell kids to use when we don't want to explain things to them or just a faculty that we pretend with. Our imagination is is how we know things. It's how we make connections between what's going on in our world and the meaning and the purpose of things. It's, it's a very vital faculty that we need. So uh, this is partly why I think John John can help us or why Revelation is worth giving a shot to, I think, because it comes from a pastor who was struggling, written to Christians who were struggling, and um, I think it works on our imaginations and gives us this command to see things differently, to help us not live lives of fear. Uh, but it's, as I'm saying that, we do again return to the question of, what is this book? Uh, what exactly is the book of Revelation? And it's um, more so than other parts of the Bible. I think it needs a little bit of an explanation. The Gospels and like Old Testament narrative are fairly straightforward. Psalms are a little more straightforward. Paul's letters, why we don't maybe understand what Paul's talking about. We understand a letter. Uh, Revelation is doing its own thing. So it's worth having a little bit of a longer runway to talk about its genre. Uh, and, and, and genre is so important. Uh, genre gives us the categories in which we uh, take things away from whatever it is we're engaging with. So think of William Blake's uh, poem, Tiger, Tiger, Burning Bright in the Forest of the Night. Now, if you didn't know this was poetry, and you read this like a science textbook, you, it'd, be, it'd be a prime example of completely missing the point. But you could you could imagine with me someone seeing this being about <laughs> the nocturnal combustion of large jungle-dwelling predatory felines, right? That's maybe... So if you if you don't know the genre of what you're engaging with, it's easy to miss a message. It's easy to miss what's being communicated. And I think, understandably, that's happened a lot with the book of Revelation. I think the book of Revelation actually doesn't offer a ton new to the New Testament, uh, theology-wise. It just goes about its... It goes about being itself, being revelation, uh, in its own way. It does its own key. Um, and so I just want to talk about this. And actually the considerate thing about this letter is in the first five verses, first four verses maybe, it actually tells us what it is. It's, it's nice. It tells us a little bit up front. And it's a bit of a mixed genre, a, a mixed category thing, so I'm just going to do the three. It's an apocalyptic, it's a prophecy, and it's a pastoral letter. Now, I'll start with um, apocalyptic. If you Google apocalypse or apocalyptic, you're most likely going to get something like this that I got when I Google this. The complete final destruction of the world, especially as described in the biblical book of Revelation. 
The second is an event involving destruction or damage on an awesome or catastrophic scale. And in, in common discussion, we talk about like post-apocalyptic literature or, or, or books, uh, and it, it has this connotation of being the end of the world, the destruction of the world, which I think is complete, well, I, is not the case whatsoever. It's off. So the name of the book Revelation comes from the Greek word apocalypsis, which is where we get our word apocalypse from. Uh, but the ancient idea and the contemporary one aren't the same. The word literally means an unveiling. Uh, it means a disclosure. It does not mean destruction. And in John's world, apocalyptic was a well-known genre of literature. Uh, some bestsellers that are contemporary to his, like Second Baruch, The Visions of Hermas, or The Apocalypse of Zephaniah, stuff that I know you all are all about tweeting about and um, anyway yeah there were lots of other other this is a known genre of literature from the first century and here is another $15 fancy explanation for it from uh, a scholar named John Collins who worked for years down at Yale and he says this about about the genre of apocalyptic literature he says it's a genre of revelatory literature with a narrative framework so it's telling a story in which a revelation or an unveiling, a word from somewhere else, is mediated by an otherworldly being to a human recipient. And it discloses, it discloses a transcendent reality, which is both temporal, insofar as it envisions uh, an end, an end, an ending, but it's also spatial, and that it involves another supernatural world. So it has to do with uh, that makes I think people follow that for the most part, right? It's it's a it's a it's a type of literature that comes in a story. An individual person gets a special message about what's going beyond. What's there's more than what we can see, and it's a style of writing. It's very stylized. It's very symbolic. You can see some of the imagery from John's uh, letter up here. Uh, there's people. Significant people are often represented by animals, maybe a lamb or a dragon. Uh, significant historical events are represented by natural disasters, earthquakes, and floods. Colors have meanings, as do numbers. There's lots of strange numbers in the book of Revelation. And Pastor Daryl Johnson, in, a, in a, another really great book, this book looks, maybe it looks a little intimidating because of its size, but it's, it's, it's a beautiful exposition on the book of Revelation, I don't love the name, Discipleship on the Edge. Um, but it, he, it's great. He preached through the book of Revelation over a number of years, and it's, he's a great communicator. Um, it's a highly recommended book. It used to be in our library, and it wasn't, so now I bought the new edition, so it's back in our library. But it's recommended if you're at all curious about this. But he says this type of literature, this apocalyptic literature, does two things. It situates the present in light of unseen realities of the future, but it also situates the present in light of the invisible realities of the present. So he says the fundamental conviction of this type of literature is that things are not as they seem. There's more going on than what we see. And it's this unseen reality, which is the true reality, that Revelation is trying to, apocalyptic literature is trying to unveil. Uh, so if you want to think about an apocalyptic movie, don't think about an end-of-the-world movie. Think about The Wizard of Oz. 
if people here, am I losing people on the Wizard of Oz? I know a younger generation might not be familiar with it. You should be. Uh, uh, you should talk with your parents if you've uh, never seen it. They've they've done you a disservice. But um, <laughs> but yeah, Toto pulls back the curtain at the end. He literally unveils, and the great and powerful Oz is just, in the words of Dorothy, just a very bad man. And you see that this. This this man who had all these claims to power and to be in control was just weak and old and hiding behind this machine that amplified his voice. And so though apocalyptic literature tracks in images and symbolic concepts that are bizarre and strange to us, uh, it, it, its intent was to actually express hope, to give hope, because it would pull back the curtain to reveal or disclose other realities, often offering a scathing critique of the powers that be, the Oz's of the world. Um, and it would show they ultimately don't have the final authority. And so N.T. Wright comments that this sort of literature often comes out of oppressed groups of people who don't have the means to just speak directly to power uh, and change things, but they, they use this as a subversive a subversive type of literature. So that is, apocalyptic means unveiling, pulling back the curtain, disclosing, not destroying. So that's partly what John is trying to do to show the actual truth of the world, not the destruction of the world. The second thing Revelation does is it calls itself a prophecy. John calls himself a prophet as well. And the assumption is that prophecy is primarily a word about the future. Uh, uh, it's a word of foresight. That's maybe what comes... Is that what pe- comes to people's mind when they hear prophecy? Like it's about the future, an unknown thing. Um, now, John's understanding of prophecy is shaped by the Old Testament. There's 404 verses in the book of Revelation. And there's roughly 518 references or allusions to Old Testament scripture throughout Revelation. And the vast majority come from the prophets. So John is in a way, and he, interestingly enough, he never directly quotes any of the prophets. He just sort of echoes or alludes, uses their same imagery. But it's almost like John is gathering up with the biblical witness, the prophetic witness in the Old Testament, the words of Ezekiel, Daniel, Zephaniah, Isaiah, and he recasts them through what he thinks the truth is, which is that Jesus is Lord. And these Old Testament books often do have something to say about the future, a word of foresight, but that's not exclusively or even primarily their target. It's less a word of foresight and more a word often of insight, a word spoken about God on the present moment. Prophecy is speaking words of comfort or challenge into the present moment on behalf of God into historical concrete situations. It can pertain to the future, but it's not as though it's the only horizon uh, it's concerned with. Someone has summed it up by saying they meant to uh, afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted, to speak into into concrete uh, reality. And like Old Testament prophecy, John sees a link between what you worship and ultimately how you treat your neighbors, that orthodoxy, proper worship, and justice are two sides of the same coin. Uh, who you worship, who you submit to, who you think is actually running the show has everything to do with how you live your life and how you treat your neighbor. Um, 
And so that's prophecy. And the last one is it's a pastoral letter. And we've talked about this a little bit. John, who describes himself as a brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. Uh, and he's, he's using this, uh, these images again to a pastoral end. So Balcom in his little book, um, again, it's a great little book, the theology of the book of Revelation, says many misreadings of Revelation, especially those which assume that much of the book was not addressed to its first century readers, it could only be understood by later generations, that's sort of the left-behind reading, uh, have resulted from neglecting the fact that it is a letter. Um, so you can grow up, you can get a PhD and become a scholar and be able to say, this is a letter. Um, and again, what Peterson said, all of this eschatology is put to pastoral use. And you can see in the handout I gave you that the, the recipients of this of this strange document are seven different churches. Um, and that what, that's what composes the second and third chapter of the book. These are the people that received it. And I'm going to just show us another. This is another image uh, from Jenniket. This is a 2002 piece called Cast Our Crowns. He actually has a ton of paintings of Jesus being crowned or people putting crowns on Jesus. He must love this. Um, but this was one of them. But I'm just going to take a moment to just just to point out. Just I have I have uh, sort of artificially given a bit of an outline to the book of Revelation. If you buy another book on Revelation, or look at maybe a, a, a Bible Project video online about the book of Revelation, which is a great use of 30 minutes. It's a longer video, uh, but it's wonderful. They might break it up somewhat differently, but it's just a way to sort of see what's happening. Get maybe a, a 30,000 foot. Uh, view on the letter, and it begins with this introduction. It has these messages to the seven churches, and then it has this orienting vision of a throne room, which is where we'll go next. And then we're going to jump over really from chapter 6 to verse 20, but I'll just point out what's there. There's a series of uh, oracles of judgments that are all sevens, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. There's a vision of the fall of Babylon. There's this uh, Jesus and his enemies uh, at the end there in 19 and 20. And then a vision of the new heavens and the new earth, which we'll spend a little bit of time with uh, at the end. But then these, uh, this chart here just also shows each of the, there's a, somewhat of a structure to each of the churches. There's a description of Jesus. There's something that said praiseworthy of the church, except for two churches that don't get any um, anything nice said about them or praiseworthy <laughs> said about them. And then after the, after the, what's said about them, there is Jesus saying, I have something against you, a call to repent, and then a promise, um, to those who overcome at the end. So we, this is sort of, this, if you want to look back in Revelation later, uh, I don't know, it's just, it's one of the books that once you kind of chart it out is, um, is a little bit helpful. And so it's a little freebie. Um, uh, from from us here, well, from me here at Libri, uh to you all. And so I want to jump in, actually, to, I'd, I'd like to spend a little bit of time looking at the orienting vision uh, of, of the throne room, but then also look briefly at the concluding um, uh, vision. So one maybe has to do with insight, you know, prophecy is insight and foresight. One is more insight, the other is more foresight. And so we're going to look at 
This is actually a, an amazing piece um, that is, uh, you can't really see it all, obviously, or can't see it well. Um, but it's called The Return. It's a 2002 piece uh, from Janigate, and there's actually a ton of, there's a ton going on uh, in this painting. And um, uh, But yeah. So I'm gonna let's look at um, Revelation four, which I think is on the back of your back of your handout, and it's just worth saying that the first vision in the book uh, is not one of disaster but of worship. When the curtain is first pulled back, what we see are not cosmic powers at work in the world scheming its final destruction. Uh, what we're going to see are concentric circles of of the cosmos worshiping God and the Lamb. And I've spoken for a little while. Does anyone feel bold enough to, to read uh, chapter 4, which is on the back, to stand up, speak loudly, and when there's stuff that's been highlighted or underlined, maybe read those with a little more gusto? If not, I'm happy to do this. I'm, you didn't, you're already here on a Friday night. Um. All right, I'll do it. Okay, do it. Do it, Sarah. I mean, please do it, Sarah. Don't. I'm not, it's not how our relationship works. <laughs> Read the Bible, no. <laughs> Sorry. The whole, the whole, all 11 verses. Uh, please, yeah. And, yeah. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald and circled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, 
and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Amen. Thanks, Sarah. There's a really interesting uh, link. A beautiful, like John is a literary genius in a lot of ways, and um, there's just a little, like, it's interesting. You might be familiar. It's a well-known thing that was used in evangelistic services. But what he says to the church in Laodicea at the end of chapter 3 is he says, Behold, I stand at a door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come to him and eat with him and he with me. There's that, if you remember that. And then immediately after this in verse 4 says, And I look, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. So there's this promise of a door that will open and Jesus will come, but then it's the door and John kind of goes, uh, goes the other, other direction. It's just one of those little, uh, one of those little things. But it's, um, it's worth maybe just taking a brief moment and this is a vision of what's going on in heaven and, uh, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright has this great little quip. He says, heaven is important, but it's not the end of the world. Uh, and his point is not that heaven is some far off thing that is waiting for us at the end of time, but uh, as though heaven and earth are these hermetically sealed realities, one is up there and we are down here, they're overlapping components of one reality, heaven and earth. And this image of going through the door, the door being open is pulling back the curtain. And if you're at all interested in heaven, just a brief um uh, advertisement for a wonderful book written by one of our colleagues, the English Libri, Jim Paul. Um, this book is called What on Earth is Heaven? It's a great, uh, a great, very readable uh, introduction, really to the Christian faith, but also to this biblical vision of heaven not just being pie in the sky when you die, um, but a reality that is going on right now. But so, uh, okay, so... Um, but yeah, so as we start, we, we, John is exhorted to look. He looks. He's given a, an imperative, a command to look. And he sees a throne. This is the orienting vision of the book. And a throne is a highly political image. It's a seat of power. And so John is calling us to imagine the seat of power that's really at the control center of the universe. Um, and without being told there is a control center to the universe, there is a throne, it's very tempting to think there is no control center to the universe, that no one's running uh, the, the show. But the throne is one of the most dominant images in the book of Revelation. John speaks about a, a throne 47 times and uses related terms another 77 times. So John is very concerned about power, political power, social power, and so the first thing John sees, he's told, look, and he sees a throne. And there's five things that I just want to highlight about this throne that I actually got from uh, Daryl Johnson's book. What's on the throne, what's behind the throne, what's coming from the throne, what's before the throne, and what's around the throne. 
and if you still have your your handout, I sort of underlined or bolded uh, those things. But so that there's something on the throne, there's someone on the throne. One of the most important realities to grasp for John's vision is that someone is on the throne. Uh, I admit, I feel like no one is on the throne of the universe. No one is running the show. There's no control. There's no rhyme. There's no reason. Bad things happen to good people. Good things happen to bad people. Uh, but John is saying there's someone there. There's someone uh, that is in charge, who who is running the show. And it's important to, to remember that Scripture never tells us that the visible circumstances of our life or what's going on in the world will teach us the sovereignty of God. It's not that we look out on the world and then we are, we're told we're just going to deduce the fact that God is in control and he has a good plan. Often it feels the other way, which is why Scripture reminds us again and again that there is someone on the throne, that there's someone in control. Then there's something behind uh, the throne in verse 3. Uh, something is encompassing, and it's a rainbow, and it's a symbol of God's promise never to destroy the earth again that comes from uh, Genesis chapter 9 with Noah. So the rainbow is saying it's it's safe to come forward. You can see, I like how he's got a bunch of them kind of uh, in in there in the image, it's worth looking at that image uh, on your own time um, if you can't see it well from your seat. But there's at the same time, while there's this rainbow saying it is safe to come forward, there's also something coming from the throne. There's lightning, there's rumbling thunder, which perhaps harkens back to the giving of the law at Sinai, where thunder and lightning, a thick cloud and a loud trumpet blast, and a whole mountain trembled. And when you trace the use of the imagery through the Bible, you learn that it's a way of declaring how awesome and powerful and how holy God is. And that this one that's on the throne actually belongs there. The imagery declares God is right to judge and to judge all that is ultimately not right. And in, later in the book where there's these, uh, in chapter 6 to 16, where these judgments, the seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, each one of those series of seven actually ends uh, uh, with um, lightning, rumbling, thunder. Again, so this same image is carried uh, throughout the entire book. But there's also something in front of this throne. There's seven lamps burning with fire, the seven spirits of God, which is John's unique way of, of talking about the fullness of the spirit, the completeness of God's spirit. And there's a sea of glass that's like crystal. People know the hymn, Holy, 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 uh, uh, might remember this line, casting down their golden crowns around the glassy sea. Uh, and in the he well, I'll say this uh, when we also go to uh, chapter 21 and 22, but um, yeah, the sea in the biblical imagination is everything that opposes God. In Revelation 13, the, the, the beast is going to actually emerge from the sea. And in the Old Testament, the Hebrew imagination didn't like the sea because the sea is chaos. When they would go out in boats, they would hug the coastline and not go way out into the water because the waters are uncontrollable. You don't know what's in the water. You don't know what's going to happen on the water. But it's saying here they're still, they're almost like glass because God has subdued the chaos. It's still and it's quiet. And so the church in John's day, like 
many of us and perhaps the church uh, as a whole can feel like a little a boat that's being battered around uh, on the chaos and uncontrollable nature of the sea. But here it's subdued. It's under control and it's it's still uh, before the one who sits on the throne. And we'll say a little bit more about that when we get to um, chapter 21 again. But then there's all this stuff going on around the throne. There's 24 other thrones with 24 elders with golden crowns on their heads. And there's four living creatures. Um, uh, in Roman culture, this number of 24, I think, especially surrounding a throne, would kind of uh, really have one implication. The emperor, or, or one connection. The emperor had 24 bodyguards with him at all times. He was always surrounded by 24 guards. And I think also in the biblical mind, 24 brings to mind sort of the fullness of the people of God, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles. Maybe this is also collectively representing the redeemed people of God. And these living creatures, they I think they represent the animate world of God's creation. They're covered in eyes. Eyes are a sign of wisdom, being able to see and perceive things as they are. So <clears throat> when these creatures give God praise... Uh, and they, they fall down and say that God is worthy. Now, worthy is another word, um, or, or, or just like the number 24, has a very political association in the first century. Worthy doesn't really come from the religious world, or doesn't come exclusively from the religious world. It comes from the secular world. Worthy is what was shouted by citizens when the emperor entered a city. Worthy is what was shouted by Roman senators as the emperor entered the great hall. Here's some other things they would shout to the emperor as he came in, maybe to give the state of the union or some sort of address. They would say, Holy One, glory, salvation belongs to you, authority, worthy to receive power, righteous in your judgments, our Lord and our God. So the one on the throne receives this because... In John's vision, it's because he's made everything, and he's given everything their being. And these elders are coming to him, and they're taking their crowns off and laying them down before them, which just means they have to take their own crowns off of their heads first, right? They have to de-crown themselves, de-authoritate themselves. There has to be some word uh, that means that. Is there a word that means that, Esther? There's, yeah, okay, sorry. But it's quite a politically charged vision. It's got a symphony of Old Testament illusions, uh, but it is also a challenge to assumptions of power. It's pulling back the curtain. It's turning common images of power on their heads and exclaim and unmasking false claims to power. But it keeps going. It goes into chapter five, and I'll, I'll read. I'll read from chapter five, um, or you could actually just. I'm going to just sort of talk about it, but you can look along. Chapter 5 is on the back there. And then John sees another thing. He he sees in the right hand of him who's sitting on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found 
who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Don't weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands, ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. So, yeah, it's sort of a wild a wild scene, chapter 5. Um, but it's worth remembering. I think Balcom is on to something. Part, part of what Revelation is after is trying to purge and refurbish the Christian imagination. These images are meant to work on us and our assumptions about what's going on in reality and what is possible. And I'm just going to draw attention to a few things. John focuses in on this scroll that's in the hand of him who's sitting on the throne. And a scroll would often represent the king's authoritative will, the king's words, and what the king said was going to happen. And in this sort of cosmic sense, no one is able to open this scroll. It's not sealed once. It's not sealed twice. It's sealed seven times. It's completely sealed. No one can open it. No one can make sense of what's going on in this world. Human history, whatever whatever's happening here, no one can make sense of what's going on. And I think that's why John weeps. And I think that's why so many people weep. I, I, I understand why John weeps before the horror and the senselessness that is so much of our lives. People weep. Artists weep. Musicians weep. How do we not weep when we look out and think there's no no one who can make sense of what's going on? And so this passage, I think, in its own unique idiom, its own bizarre way of speaking apocalyptically, it dramatizes, I think, the the it plays out the drama of the human heart, the longing of the human heart, that there is someone that can make sense of things. There is someone who can tell us what exactly is going on. And while John's weeping, an elder speaks to him. It tells him not to weep. It tells him not to weep because the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. And he tells him to look. 
Remember? To not, the, the, the commands of the book of Revelation are to look and then to not be afraid. And when we're told to look at things, it gives us a way to not be afraid. And it's crucial to recognize that there's a contrast between what John hears uh, and what John sees. He hears that the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. These are messianic titles that have a strong militaristic and nationalistic image of the Messiah of David as the conqueror of the nations uh, who will destroy the enemies of God's people. But he turns and sees something, he sees something different. Uh, he, he, it's reinterpreted by what he sees. He sees a lamb whose sacrificial death has received, uh, has redeemed people from all nations. And he juxtaposes these contrasting images. And he's forging a new image, one of conquest by sacrificial death. The slaughtered lamb is seen in the midst of or in the center of the divine throne in heaven. Christ's death, his sacrificial death, is the way that God rules the world. This is the consistent witness of the New Testament, that the exalted Lord remains the crucified Jesus that he's the center of creation, and he's the ultimate purpose of creation. This is the true face of God. There's two Greek words for lamb. One is uh, uh, amnos, which means an adult mature sheep, and one means arneon, which means little sheep. And John actually chooses the word for little sheep. It could be like little lamb. This is John's little lamb, his lammy. Um, it's a small lamb, um, an unimpressive lamb that's been slain. But it has seven eyes on it. It's, it, it has wisdom, um, seven horns. It has, it has strength, though, oddly enough. This little lamb is God's wisdom and God's power. And it is a highly, it's, it's counterintuitive, and it challenges assumptions about who's in charge and how they go about being in charge. The slaughtered lamb reveals God, but also reveals what it means to follow God. It reveals how God saves humanity and how we serve God in turn. The cross is the source and the shape of our salvation. This little lamb is the one who can open the scroll, who can take human history and open it up and make sense of it and guide it. And all the elders and the living creatures and all of creation fall before him and worship him. Not because he created them and gives them their being, as before, uh, but because he was slain and with his precious blood purchased for God members of every tribe and language and people and nation and made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God and to reign on the earth. Now, um, I've gone a little longer than I thought, but I'm going to kind of quickly go to the final vision um, uh, of John's book, sort of the closing vision, what happens in chapter 21 uh, and 22. And I don't have that all on your handout. Um, I don't really apologize for not having it on the handout either. Um, but I'm going <clears> to <throat> read for a little bit. If anyone has a Bible, feel free to uh, read, read along. I probably should have said that earlier <coughs> to have a Bible. But this is close to the closing, closing image, the new heavens and the new earth. So this is John. I'm going to read uh, for a little while here. So... Um, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, 
prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with people. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. Those all, we we skipped sort of all that stuff. Um, uh, And he spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the son of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a, a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with its rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He measured its wall, 144 cubits, by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall, it's all right, it's okay. It's, 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 yeah, yeah. I'm not going to explain everything in here either, so if you have questions, I do too. Um, <laughs> Uh, The wall was built with jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. 
through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will be, they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign there forever and ever. So, first off, thank you for listening to all of that. That was a very long reading. I'm going to say a few things about this section, and if you don't remember all these things or didn't notice them, it's fine. It was a lot that you just listened to. This is also another picture of, uh, this is called, um, <clears throat> Make All Things New from 2005. Um, uh, <coughs> but it's um, it's interesting that John sees a new heaven and a new earth um, but instead of describing mountains and rolling hills animals and birds he says he sees a city and he describes this city in kind of strange ways and does a strange thing uh, when he sees um, it. and again it's an apocalyptic it has a lot of imagery um, on a lot of things that are hard to make sense of. But I want to say just a few things about things that are absent in, in this city that comes down out of heaven. Uh, things that uh, aren't there. There are seven things listed in this chapter that won't characterize this world. And the first is in verse 1. There's no sea. Uh, we said this, we, we, we kind of mentioned this before, but the sea is chaos, The sea is the unknown, the lurking disorder that has the potential to swallow up the good. Uh, Think of the flood, the ancient waters. And again, ancient people would travel in boats that would hug the shore because they were afraid of the waters. It was unknown to them. Uh, and, And this is not a way of saying there won't be any water in the new heavens and the new earth, but the chaos that we think of with water. Uh, the chaos that, that characterizes so much of our lives is gone. And we also see that because it moves down in verse 4. It mentions that there will be no more tears, no death, no mourning. Tears will be wiped away. And regardless of how advanced our technology gets, no matter how much we know or do, all the numbers are in, and everyone is still dying, right? Everyone uh, has an end to their life. But the new heavens and the new earth are, are a place where there is no more death. There's no mourning. There's no tears. John then goes on to talk about there will be no uh, behaviors that are inconsistent with God's kingdom. He, he talked about that, um, about cowardly, faithless, detestable. and uh, some Anyway, uh, scholars have some thoughts on that particular list. But then in verse 22, he says this peculiar thing that I'm going to swing back to, that there's no temple. Um, a little after that, he speaks that there's no gates. This city isn't a prison. It's also not under threat. In uh, 22, verse 3, there's no more curse. Blessings have overrun the curse. Creation isn't undone, but the curse of Genesis 3 has been undone. Think of Handel's joy to the world. No more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Creation is being set right. But in all of these absences, God is is righting the wrongs of his fallen creation. He's not throwing it out for us to dwell as ethereal, as spiritual bodies. 
He's taking away the things that plague and torment the good but fallen world. This is a vision of, of God making all things new, not making all new things. Uh, the new heavens and the new earth are a renewal of the world that we know. And I, I just think it's interesting the things that uh, James Jennigan in- included in this, like a saxophone and lots of flowers and barbecue. Um, just good, good stuff. Um, but yeah, there's no temple. Going back to this, there's no temple. I'm j- I've just run through the others, but I want to spend a moment here. Because uh, this would be a startling absence in a world made right. A temple was a place where sinful humanity could encounter a holy and just God. It was a place where the Lord dwells. Um, uh, and it was a place in the ancient mind where heaven and earth overlapped. It was sacred. Jesus describes his body as a temple. Paul uses it to speak of of the church. Um, uh, and it's interesting that he doesn't say that there's a temple. But also going back, I, it, you might have noticed uh, when he, as I said, he describes this city coming down from heaven. Uh, or sorry, he describes a new heaven and a new earth. He says he sees a city coming down from heaven. And uh, I understand if you've forgotten it all or if it got jumbled in it. But he describes this great wall. There's lots of twelves. Uh, this is in verse 15 or so. And a peculiar thing's happened. Uh, the cities come down and they decide to measure the city. Um, as one does, and they, it's it's twelve thousand stadia, and does anyone? Well, no, that's about uh, one thousand three hundred and eighty miles, and this this city is massive. To give you an idea, if you got in a car and drove from here to Omaha, Nebraska, that's one thousand four hundred and eleven <laughs> miles. So just a little bit bigger uh, than what this was, and this city was as long. Uh, as it was wide. It's a massive city. It's unfathomably big. It's close to the size of Europe. And scholars think it's really would have been how people thought the size of the world was at the time. And then there's this unexpected thing. He says uh, its length and width are the same, but so is its height. Its height is the same. This city is a massive cube. That is the size of the known world. And it's easy to miss because there's all these other things going on. They're talking about uh, all the sort of uh, crystals and stuff that will adorn its foundation. But it's a massive cube uh, that's coming down from heaven. Does anyone, a massive cube, does that call to mind anything from the scriptures? Libri workers maybe will hold off. What's that? Ark of the Covenant, close. Anybody else? Yeah, Allison? Yeah, the Holy of Holies. So the part of Israel's temple where God dwelt was a perfect cube, where the priest, the high priest could only go once a year where God's presence was. It was so holy that he'd go once a year, and he had something tied around him in case God's presence was too much and he died. They could pull his body out. But it wasn't a place that you could just casually go. But John's vision is ultimately, at the end, God's presence is going to take over the whole world. All of the new heavens and the new earth are going to be a holy of holies. And this is why there's no temple in the new heavens and earth, because all of creation is going to be this world-encompassing holy of holies. 
What John is saying here is that in making all things new, God's going to make the world his home. The cosmos will be transformed and transfigured into a holy dwelling where God will be with his people. And there's all those jewels that are mentioned that are also are used in the, in the temple. Um, there, there's all this stuff uh, that's going on. So I'm going to stop there. Revelation is a strange book. Um, and there's a lot in it that I don't understand. I'm, we'll move into a time of questions, and you'll probably hear me say I don't know uh, many times about it. But it is a book that's written from uh, a, a, a Christian pastor who is facing hard times because of his faith. And he was writing it to other Christians who were also facing hard times because of their faith. They were confused, they were in doubt, they were persecuted, they were struggling. And John offers these admittedly strange images um, that can unsettle us and confuse us. But I think his goal was for us to see something different, to have our imagination shaped in a different way so we can be people who aren't characterized by fear, but people who love God and who love our neighbor. So that's where I'm going to stop. Uh, I'm going to turn it back to... I, I still kind of like this image the most, I think. But... Um, yeah, I can, you're free to go, or free to, I have, yeah, yeah, I'll try to, resp- I will respond to questions. This is not a hard one. You might be surprised. I have been convicted recently about how little we read aloud. Yeah. It's, it's called out right in verse one, or chapter, first chapter, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And I, I'm so thankful that you read aloud because yeah. I, I so rarely hear us read more than a few script, a few lines, yeah. you know. Yeah. It's nice to hear, like, yeah. Listen, you know? Yeah. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was, uh, I asked when I was reading it that time too, I was like, oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. All right. Yeah. 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 Any responses? Any thoughts? Any comments? Yeah, Andrew? Um, yeah, I, I've always thought about Revelation as like kind of the ways you were saying at the beginning are not the way I think about it. <laughs> um, and yeah, there's the words like amillennial, premillennial, yeah, yeah. etc. Just like, does all of, all of this happen later? Did this all happen during the Roman Empire, etc.? Um, but I mean, are you kind of are you thinking through your study? that um, it's okay to also think of this as like two concurrent events, that it's like we are going through our physical reality, this stuff is currently happening in the unseen realm, and so kind of when people are dying, they're like entering this reality. Um, Because I think you said at the beginning, this doesn't really speak to the end at all, like an end. It's just like this is giving hope to a people. Yeah, yeah. So is it like you can see that these are happening parallel at the same time? Yeah. Yeah, I think at least, I think four and five are more like what's going on, like what's the true nature of existence. Hmm. But I think later, some of the stuff later on is is also about a future. Yeah, yeah, like especially 21 and 22. And yeah, Hmm. there's people that I don't have like... um, yeah, I'm so like easily swayed or convinced one way, like when people are like, oh, this is all this or all, oh, or 
you know, they call it like a preterist or historicist view that this is all already, everything has a first century explanation. Yeah. Uh, and then there's others who say, no, everything's future. I tend to be like, well, well, I'm very easily convinced one way, I, or I'm, I'm swayable, I guess. Uh, and, but I think some of it is about now and some of it's about the future. So I, um, uh, but I could probably be proven wrong pretty quickly. Um, did that answer it? Uh, uh, or? I mean, it's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. But I think that's where I think, like, um, thinking about the uh, people that are, like, um, the questions you sort of, like, the questions you bring to, the questions I bring to Revelation, I think, are interesting, because... Um, yeah, most of my life I've been pretty comfortable. I've never been persecuted. Um, I mean, I've suffered in different ways, um, including yeah. from my faith, but not in major ways. But I think, you know, when you see the things that these communities were, these churches are, are going through, like I think John had a word for them for the present um, to help yeah. them sort of re-see their present moment. Like, yeah, this... Everything's going wrong for you at the moment because you're following Jesus, but mm. there's more to this moment than what you see. Mm. Um, so I think some of that like has to be part of it, but I, and I but I do think some of it is also for the like for the future, yeah. like where God is taking the world. Um, but yeah, just a quick follow-up. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Um, do you think there is value in spending time and energy uh, trying to kind of decodify it or look at the details? Like you didn't mention the number of man is 666. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah the mark of the beast and, and just different yeah. things they talk about. Like even though a lot is going on in Revelation, there's a lot of very specific images. Yeah, yeah. Even you said seven yeah. eyes means complete wisdom. And, yeah. Um, but is it kind of a fool's errand because you know, it's so hard? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's definitely one that should come with some humility. But I mean, I think there's there's helpful guides, people that are, are more helpful than like less, and then people that are less helpful. Hmm. But I do I do think there it's one of the books that has a um, should require a fair a decent amount of humility hmm. uh, going with and. Um, yeah, so people, I, there's a guy named Michael Gorman who wrote a book called Reading Revelation Responsibly. Mm. Um, it's a great book. I think the Richard Balcom book is great. This Daryl Johnson Discipleship on the Edge book is great. It's just, you know, it's, I think like a lot of, you know, the Bible is written for us, but it wasn't written to us. Mm. And there is a lot, I think, in scripture that, um, sort of cross cultures and through time um, you, I always think a guide can be helpful but sometimes it's a little more straightforward you know like but then I think there's parts and it's not just it's not just um, revelation but there's lots of parts of the Bible that yeah it's not it's written for me but it wasn't written to me and I don't know what on earth to do with it so I just need I need some help uh, making sense of this whether I mean, and, you know, controver- the Bible, like, the Bible begins with one of the most controversial, heated, uh, hotly disputed, you know, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, mm-hmm. 
people will also be like, oh, I don't know what to do with it because it's, you know, what is it? And so I think a lot of, and this is a gift of our, of where we are. Um, the, the, there's a lot of great resources I think that can help us make sense of scripture. But I, I do want to have a bit of humility about it. And I do think, like I said, with the civil rights movement and Brian, Brian Bell's book, like, I don't think you have to have everything exactly worked out in it. Um, to get the gist of it, you know, yeah. like they still found this a book that could <clears throat> encourage their faith and give them hope to fight a, un, a like a oppressive, unjust system of segregation. Um, and other other Christians throughout uh, history have also found revelation to serve to that end, but maybe don't have degrees in apocalyptic literature or whatever, and you know. So, I don't know, does anyone else have any thoughts on that? I mean, I know it's a strange... It's a, yeah. Do you, Eleanor? Sorry, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, are any other questions or any other thoughts or comments or anything? Yeah. Just um, really love this. It's very helpful to me. Um, but the... Uh, we, I forget what the exact wording was, but, but um, to recasting people's imagination, yeah, re-infusing re- it with new images, and I thought that was interesting. And I thought, to me, what struck me the most um, as an example of that was what you pointed out that he he hears the lion of Judah spoken about, and then he looks to see the lion, and he sees the lamb. Yeah, 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 and. And how that is just an unbelievable lamb, the lamb who was slain. Yeah. It's just a, a, a total upset of, of what um, was associated with power and glory and victory and um, dominance, right? It's, yeah, it's, he's the lamb, he's, he's, he's won the victory, he is absolutely the Lord of the universe. And yet, the reason he's in this place right now and has the authority to open the scrolls because he died. You know, yeah. And he yeah. was sacrificed. Yeah. Uh, he was slaughtered uh, for for the world, and that as a, a way of reimagining what what victory and power and majesty looks like. Yeah. Um, is man, we have the same problem today that they would have had in the first century in terms of you know. Power of victory, that must be the emperor on his war horse riding into some conquered city, right? Or something like that. Mm-hmm. Like, no. Yeah. It's Jesus Christ on the throne. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, because of what he did. Yeah. And uh, that, that to me is, was really helpful and, and uh, insightful. So thank you. Yeah, there's, um, there's another part too where it's like the same dynamic where he, he hears the 144,000, but then he turns and he sees a multitude that no one could number, you know, standing before the throne and the Lamb. So the dynamic of, like, hearing one thing but seeing yeah. something more, yeah, is, like, yeah, is throughout. Or happens a couple times in Revelation, at least. But. It reminds me a little bit of Jesus, like, teaching himself, where he's like, you've heard this said, but I tell you this. He's yeah. like, this is what you have in your head, you know, but actually look over here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, Heidi. I really appreciate the artwork. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, just it's a, such an invitation to reimagine as well because um, the 
Renaissance paintings, but then the colors are, they didn't have those colors back then, they only had earth tones, but this is like so vibrant and yeah. colorful, and um, it just really helps me to um, just like reimagine, like, just like what was just said, you've heard this, but this is what I said. Yeah, yeah. Kind of that intention, so. Really that. He, oh, sorry, I, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Also, what was his last name again? Yeah, let me spell it for you. Um, uh, I, I struggle to pronounce. I watched an interview with him like six times where he said his name so that I could say it right here, but I still failed. Uh, his name is James Janiket, so J A N K N E G T. And it's his website is BC Art Farm. Art Farm. Um, he lives on a farm outside of Austin. And, but um, yeah, I, I um, he has a lot of a lot of biblical imagery. Like he has, a, and he just put out a book this last year because he's done forty paintings on forty parables, um, and so he used that for uh, for Lent. Um, I did not. I bought the book. Uh, to use it for Lent and did not use it for Lent but I bought the book um, and yeah but I do I also really like his style because it's sort of disarming and strange but then yeah the more I look at it I think it's actually quite rich and he he, he gets a he actually communicates a ton through sort of simple well this one's not particularly simple I think it's for me. I think it's helpful because it's not because so much of the language in Revelation is symbolic. And if this was more like realist, if it was really like realistically done and not yeah. sort of stylized, it would it would almost take away from the meaning of it. It's, yeah, even so stylized makes you helps you to read Revelation as in a symbolic way. That it's yeah, well, that's a really good way of putting it. I didn't even think of that. Yeah. Oh yeah. The center image. Has the lion and the lamb together mm-hmm. like the, mm-hmm. the the light and fear mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. maidish yeah 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 and then the lamb I don't know he also um, it's funny you can see here. He like hates McDonald's and Target because yeah, he has all these paintings about like what's wrong with the world and it's often or and there's or things that are wrong like in the city and like exploitation exploitation of people and of the earth. He almost always uses like gas stations, McDonald's, and the Target symbol, which I like Target, uh, <laughs> I, but yeah, I. He's a little he's too hardcore for me on that front. But, uh, yeah, anything else anybody want to say? Yeah, go for it, Andrew. Um, I'll just say that one of my favorite observations about um, Revelation is just the lamb sitting on the throne. Mm-hmm. Uh, just explained as, like, the ultimate uh, picture of power and control. That we don't see Jesus as like holding a spear or a shield or mm-hmm. in a stance or strategizing. It's like when he finished his good work on the cross, he can sit and he's not like you know, 
worried or <laughs> fearful. It's just he's just sitting there in complete control, waiting till the right time. Yeah. Yeah. Like when he shows that the writer on. Actually, if I have it. Oh wait, I have a couple more of his. That's in one of his paintings, and that this one. The writer on, he's got a bunch still on Revelation. But yeah, in Revelation 19, the writer on the white horse, when he shows up to battle, he shows up. There's really is no battle. It's totally anticlimactic. Uh, it's awesome. But, uh, but he, he's bloodied going into the battle, not at the end of the battle. Like, and it's his own blood, uh, which sort of corresponds to the, the same thing in Revelation 19. Look at those target Yeah, target exalts. <laughs> this might be Wawa over here. I'm not sure, but I don't think Wawa exists. Yeah. Oh, maybe Walmart. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Yeah, I showed uh, my kids these pictures this week, and they both were like, I don't understand these pictures, but they're like, they really wanted to look at them. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so. Joshua. Oh well, what, just when he is painting things that are sort of represent exploitation and like sort of and sin and evil in our world, I think he sees large corporations as you know producers of waste and treating people poorly. And uh, I'd, I'd also read somewhere that the McDonald's arches are. Like more recognized Christian cross. So yeah. Uh, I feel like this is almost saying like this is above that, this is not. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, anyway, thanks uh, for coming out to listen to Revelation on a Friday night.